episode of Employment Law Problems, where I, your host, Brett Holobeck, discuss some of the most pressing labor and employment law problems facing employers today and the challenges that human resource representative businesses and managers have to undertake to respond to these challenges. And in this episode, I'm discussing Texas's legislative session that recently ended and its impacts on employers in the state of Texas. And with that, we're going to move on to the very first part of this episode. Texas legislature finished up a jam-packed legislative session over the summer. And as I said in the opening, it's going to have a profound impact on employment law in Texas. And the interesting thing about Texas, for those of you that may, you know, human resource representatives and others that may have offices here in Texas or uh, branches in Texas, Texas is a little bit unique among states. Uh, The Texas legislature doesn't meet every year. It meets every other year unless the governor calls a a special legislative session. And the governor has announced a special legislative session. So even though the general session has ended, uh, the governor announced a special legislative session on August 5th, and he's extended that. Uh, There's been some disputes. Maybe some of you have been following the news and you've seen that there was a lack of quorum to discuss and pass legislation uh, for that special legislative session because a lot of the Democratic legislatures had left the state. Um, to prevent a vote on a bill relating to some voting laws. So the legislature now has quorum, or at least it had quorum uh, at the beginning of this episode. There's not that many, there's not really that many bills that are going to affect employers in the special legislative session. At this point, it's not clear that it's going, those bills are going to pass. So rather than discuss those, we're going to move on to the bills, the legislature uh, discussed this past legislative session and the bills that were actually enrolled. So uh, I just want to briefly go through the bills that passed, and I may touch on some of the bills that were considered during the legislative session. A lot of those may come back in future legislative sessions. I don't believe many of those have a strong chance of passing, uh, considering the makeup of the legislature is probably unlikely to change. It's probably going to be mostly uh, Republicans that are going to control the legislature. They're probably going to have the majority. But you never know. You know, things change pretty quickly. So it's entirely possible it could happen. If not in the next session, maybe the, the next legislature, uh, legislative session. Among the first bills that were considered, or I should say passed, and will become law here on September 1, uh, and most of these bills generally become law on September 1 of the, uh, of the year following the legislative session, or of the on September 1, following the end of the legislative session. So the bills that I'm discussing, all of them, I think, except for one, are going to take place, are going to become effective on September 1st. So the very first bill is Senate Bill 45, which relates to the prohibition against sexual harassment in the workplace. And in this bill, the Texas legislature actually expanded the definition of employer for sexual harassment claims. Uh, to anyone that employs one or more employees rather than the current 15-person limit. So before, if you had a business with less than 15 employees, uh, there was a limit on being sued for sexual harassment claims. Um, Now that limit is going to to go away. It's going to be a limit of one. So if you are a very, very small business, you know, if you are a business with just one employee, you can now be sued for sexual harassment by that employee. Well, if you have one employee, it's probably you that is the one employee. So 
Uh, it's you know unlikely that an employer with one employee, because the employer themselves is likely to be that employee, is going to be sued for sexual harassment. Now, it's possible maybe they hire somebody and have a company where they just have one employee, but more often than not, it may come in a situation where there's you know two employees, and the the owner and then the employee that they hired, that employee may sue them for sexual harassment. That's important to remember that sexual harassment doesn't necessarily mean that the employer or the supervisor is the one that's, or even another employee, is the one that's committing sexual harassment. Remember, it can always be somebody that is a client or customer that is committing sexual harassment. Uh, and the employer doesn't necessarily act and permits that environment to continue. So, you know, sexual harassment, uh, sexual harassment claims are likely to expand uh, given the new bill. I don't know if we'll see a dramatic uptick in sexual harassment claims, but, you know, you never know. These are becoming more and more common in the wake of the Me Too movement. It definitely will be the case there will be more sexual harassment claims, but I, I don't suspect that we're going to see a dramatic increase. Most of the time when you have these small businesses, the owners are more involved and they tend to be more aware of these kinds of issues and problems. And, and I think oftentimes uh, are better at putting those uh, to rest. Now, of course, there are owners that permit them and, and even commit them. And that's where you're probably going to see the impact of this legislation. Owners that are sexually harassing their, their employees or you know owners that maybe aren't involved as much that are unaware that sexual harassment is taking place at their place of the, at their business. You know, the bill also includes anyone that directly acts, anyone that acts directly in the interest of the employer in relation to the employee as employers, which means that supervisors and other individuals may now be named as individual defendants in litigation related to sexual harassment. So if you're a supervisor and you're a supervisor for a company that has 15 or more, 15 or less employees, you can now be named as a defendant. If you committed the sexual harassment, if you maybe ignored it and allowed it to persist, uh, you're going to be included on the litigation. Now, oftentimes the employer is going to defend those supervisors as part of their, uh, their claim, but not always. Sometimes the supervisor you know, may, may have gone against the wishes of the owner or may have, their, have to get their own attorney. So that is something to consider. So that's the very first bill that was considered this past year and passed and will become law on September 1st. The second bill that I want to discuss is House Bill 21, which extends the statute of limitations for sexual harassment claims. So another sexual harassment claim related bill. And so the bill will expand the statute of limitations for making sexual harassment claims from 180 days to 300 days after the alleged sexual harassment. So. It's going to become effective again September 1st. And, you know, the general thing that's going to happen with this is that there will be more sexual harassment claims because employees have a longer time to file suit. So instead of 180 days, now employees have 300 days to file suit for sexual harassment. Again, I don't think this is going to cause a dramatic uptick in sexual harassment claims. Um, most employees will file within that 180-day period. Uh, most employees, you know, when they quit, they often, if they're quitting because they're sexually harassed or if they're fired and sexually harassed um, because they refuse to engage in um, some form of sexual harassment, maybe it's having to sleep with their boss to get a promotion or something like that, and they refuse and then they're, they're fired for, for that refusal, there's going to be 
litigation relatively quickly in those circumstances, but not always. You know, sometimes people don't want to speak up. Sometimes people, uh, it takes them time to feel comfortable to file those claims, or they don't feel like they can file those claims until they get another job um, because they're worried that um, their past employer maybe is going to be contacted, or maybe they're worried about the the consequences of having filed a lawsuit and maybe their name appearing in relation to this lawsuit. So, you know, it's going to depend a little bit and it is going to increase sexual harassment claims. But again, I don't believe it's going to be a dramatic increase in those claims. There will be some increase, but not a substantial one. House Bill 139. So relating to the occupational licensing of military veterans and their spouses, so law is going to require state agencies that issue licenses with a residency requirement to obtain an occupational license to accept a permanent change of station for military service members that have a spouse that is married uh, to establish residency. So a military service spouse can show their husband slash wife's or you know significant other that they're married to, their spouse's change of station orders transfer them to a Texas military base or location that will satisfy any residency requirement for them to obtain a military license. And I believe these relate to mostly educational licenses. You know, again, it's going to make it easier for military spouses and, um, and potentially veterans to get occupational licenses here in Texas. Uh, military spouses have a really difficult time. Uh, some of the past posts I've written on my blog have, you know, talked about benefits for veterans and military spouses, they, they do have a tough time because they may move frequently, they may move unexpectedly, they have to pack up quickly, and they may not have time to establish residency in states. So a lot of states are, are considering these laws because it's a valuable benefit to be given to the military spouses and everybody wants to support the spouses of, uh, of military members. So it's just going to make it easier for these spouses to obtain these occupational licenses. And again, I think they relate mostly to educational licenses. There's going to be some administration um, actions that are going to clarify this law. So, you know, it's not totally clear yet because they're going to issue some regulations, some, some guidance. But essentially, it's going to make it easier for military spouses to obtain a license by showing their, their military uh, spouse's change of station orders. And it's a good thing. It's generally a good thing. It's going to be a lot easier and it's going to fill some of the needs that we have in our state for uh, certain occupations that require this kind of residency requirement. Another bill I want to briefly discuss is the Texas Firearm Carry Act. The Texas Firearm Carry Act. So Texas is going to become a constitutional carry state. And what that means is the new law is going to allow individuals that are 21 years or older to carry handguns in public, uh, either in a holster or concealed carry, without a government permit, provided they are not prohibited from obtaining, or sorry, prohibited from owning a firearm under state or federal law. So if you are in Texas, you're going to be allowed to engage in this constitutional carry. You're, not, you're allowed to have it in a holster or concealed carry without a government permit. Now, some of you are probably wondering, why does this affect employers? What does this have to do with employment law? Well, a lot of businesses have rules and regulations, and a lot of businesses just aren't places where it's, where it's a, probably a good idea for people to carry handguns. And so a lot of businesses have a lot of questions about this law and what limits there are in this law. 
So there are a couple important limits to note. So the law does not permit individuals to carry handguns in government courts unless under regulations or with the authorization of the court. So, you know, the bailiff is, or other police officers are going to probably be able to carry their firearms into the court. Uh, that's not going to change, but, you know, it's not going to be the case that uh, regular people are going to be able to carry those firearms. On racetrack premises, it's also prohibited to carry a handgun in secured areas of an airport, uh, bars. So you're not going to walk into your local bar with a firearm on your side. Uh, high school, college, or professional sporting events. Can't bring firearms into those places, prisons, hospitals, nursing homes, and amusement parks. So those are the ones that are, you know, exclusively or specifically mentioned that you're not allowed to carry handguns into those places. Uh, now, there are some other rules. And, you know, there are some couple things that I want to discuss that are important because employers do have the option. The law does permit employers, businesses, to prevent, I should say, any member of the public, including their employees, from bringing firearms into their business. And if those people have notice and still carry the firearm into the business, uh, when they have oral written notice that a firearm is not allowed, it is a Class C misdemeanor. So businesses, there's going to be notices that they can post to basically state that they don't want or permit, rather, firearms into their premises. And those will need to be respected by members of the public or employees. So most importantly for employers, the law still permits businesses to prevent members of the public or employees from bringing firearms into their businesses. So you can still prevent employees or members of the public, if you post a sign, from bringing those firearms inside. And it will actually be a Class C misdemeanor if the person carries a firearm into a business where they have oral or written notice that firearms are not allowed in the premises. So you can still do that. You can still, if you're not in that specific list, you can still prohibit people from bringing firearms onto the property, uh, into, the, into the physical property. So Texas does have a special requirement that still is, still is law, where Texas does not require employers to allow employees, sorry, Texas employers to allow employees to have firearms in their locked vehicles parked on company property. So even if you're a business that posts these signs and you own your parking lot, you're going to need to allow your employees to bring their firearms in, and, and leave them in their car if it's locked. So the law doesn't change that requirement. There are a couple exceptions to those, uh, but you know I'm not going to go into those details. But it's a, it's a law that's of concern for some employers. But again, the impact of this firearm uh, law is going to be relatively limited. The last thing. The last law I want to talk about is the Texas Pandemic Liability Shield. So the Texas legislature passed SB6, which limits liability for a number of parties for injuries or deaths related to the pandemic. So uh, the most important point of that provision is that it holds that employers can only be liable for workplace exposures if they knowingly fail to comply with government issued guidance or standards to lower the likelihood of COVID. So employers can be liable for COVID. It's a pandemic liability shield from liability for you know, injuries or deaths related to COVID. So employers can only be held liable for certain, if they, if they didn't do certain things. And the first thing they have to not do, and you have to meet all these, I believe, 
is they knowingly failed to comply with the government issued guidance or standards to lower the likelihood of COVID. So most businesses are following the CDC guidance. If you follow the CDC guidance, follow OSHA guidance. If you have a business, certain certain guidance from OSHA applies to um, specific businesses. Following the OSHA guidance is the very first thing. So businesses that do that, that's the first thing they have to do. The business has to have a reasonable opportunity to implement those practices related to the guidance or standards. So if the OSHA guidance comes out you know, tomorrow and the business isn't able to do everything tomorrow, maybe they have to admit, you know, do get certain equipment. Maybe they have to get, you know, certain more upgrade their ventilation. You're not going to be liable if somebody complains tomorrow, but you need to do it in a reasonable amount of time. And that's going to vary depending upon what kind of, what kind of mitigation strategy it is. Um, so you have to do it in a reasonable amount of time to, to implement these practices or standards. If you fail to do it, that's another instance when you could become liable. The business refuse to comply with the standards and guidance. So if you just refuse to comply, that's a major problem. That's where you can find liability. The guidance that the party did not comply with. So if you choose not to comply with certain guidance, didn't conflict with other guidance or standards. So this is going to be important when there are specific OSHA standards for your type of business. If they conflict with other guidance, CDC guidance or um, other OSHA general guidance related to the pandemic. You want to follow the guidance that's most specific to your particular industry, your particular business. And if there's a conflict under this law, it's going to be best if you follow, and it'll prevent liability, if you follow the guidance related to your particular industry. And finally, reliable scientific evidence shows that the failure to warn the individual of the condition, remediate the condition, or implement or comply with the government promulgated standards, guidance or protocols was in fact the uh, cause of the individual contracting COVID. So that's going to be important when you have a lot of workplace spread. If there's not a lot of workplace spread, it might be more difficult to prove that condition. But if you have, you know, 100 people in your workplace and 50, 60, 70 of them get sick in a two-week period, you're going to probably meet that condition. Now, Everything is very fact specific. I'm not saying you have to have, you know, 50, 60, 70 people get sick. It may be the case that you have two or three individuals that work in an enclosed area and both of them get sick at the same time or pretty close in time. That can meet that condition. So basically what this law basically finds is that employers should really do everything they can to prevent COVID in the workplace by following the guidance. And there is a lot of guidance out there right now. So follow the CDC guidance, follow the OSHA guidance. That's really the best thing that you as a business can do to limit liability. And that's really what the the legislature said here. I just briefly want to go through some of the bills that didn't pass. Uh, So the bills that I talked about, and I should mention as well that, um, that there could be other bills that pass here. You know, just to remind you again, there, there is a, the legislative session, there's a special legislative session right now. Could be a couple other bills that pass, but I don't think it's very likely that that many of them will do with employment law. Um, Just briefly, some of the other bills that were considered, and I'm just going to touch on these kind of in a rapid fire sequence. Uh, These bills did not pass. Uh, Bills related to hairstyle discrimination. These are popular in, I I think, six or so other states at this point have enacted laws regarding discrimination related to hairstyle. So that means that there may be a hairstyle or texture 
that's associated with a particular race, and you cannot uh, discriminate against employees because they have those hairstyles. So, you know, braids, locks, and twists are typically named as hairstyles that are protected. Uh, those that bill did those bills did not pass in the Texas legislature. It's something we'll probably see again. I don't know if it'll pass next time, but you never know. Maybe in a couple of legislative sessions, something like that will come into effect. Um, there were bills related to sick leave. Uh, those did not pass. Not something that, that was uh, made it out of the legislature. Uh, bills related to sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Those bills did not pass. But as a reminder, Title VII does protect individuals from discrimination on the basis of their sexual orientation and gender identity. So, you know, even though these bills related to sexual orientation, gender identity discrimination didn't pass, there's already other uh, protections under federal law. And I believe some state courts, and it's still under, under it's still not um, fully fleshed out, but some Texas state courts have found um, that sex does include discrimination on the basis of someone's gender identity or sexual orientation. So some state courts, or at least one, as I recall, an appellate court has found that um, individuals are protected. On, they cannot be discriminated against based on their sex or sexual orientation or uh, gender identity. So there's been at least one court, I believe it was at the appellate level, might have been a different level. Uh, definitely not the Texas Supreme Court at this point that have found that to be the case. So we're going to see more cases like that to flesh that out. But there's no, no state law. There was bills related to uh, reproductive discrimination, bills prohibiting employment discrimination on the basis of reproductive decisions, um, and certain employment agreements limiting reproductive decisions. That's typically uh, related to somebody that is pregnant, using I, uh, IVF, assisted uh, reproduction, artificial, uh, some, some sort of contraception, or you know any other healthcare drug, device, or service related to reproductive health. That didn't pass. Um, just a couple other interesting ones that I briefly want to touch on. There were a couple family leave bills. Now, none of these bills made it out of the House, as I recall. None of these bills made it to the, the Senate. Uh, but we'll probably see some more family law bills coming up in the future. Uh, you know, family leave, rather, I should say family leave, something that a lot of states are considering. Some states grant additional family leave uh, above and beyond or in addition to or you know, concurrently with FMLA. And, you know, they mostly do that to allow businesses with less than 50 employees to have some form of family leave. Um, but at this point, Texas doesn't have that kind of law related to that. Uh, there were bills related to predictive scheduling. That's a big issue uh, for many states where mainly retail workers, restaurant workers. A predictive scheduling law requires that the legislate requires that the employer give them a more predictive schedule where they're going to work. And, you know, most of the time it's a week or two weeks notice before the shift begins and they have to be put on notice that they're going to work. There were some several bills related to minimum wage. None of those bills passed. And it's unlikely, unless the legislature changes, that those bills will pass in the future. We probably will see some changes, or we may see some changes on the minimum wage if it happens at the federal level. There's a lot of debate about $15. Uh, 
Um, there's a lot of a lot of debate about not not doing a $15 minimum wage. I think Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, has stated that $15 is probably too high for West Virginia. Um, but I think he's talked about maybe a $10 minimum wage. So, you know, we might see this at the federal level. So those are the bills that passed um, in the Texas legislature and will become law on September 1. And the bills that did not pass, you know, many of those we might see again. We might see other variations of them, but it's something just to be aware of, to put on your radar, because those may come about in the future. And with that, we're going to close out this episode. And that concludes another episode of Employment Law Problems. I hope you gained some insights into what the Texas legislature considered, what they passed this year, and some of the impacts they can have on Texas businesses. And if you're an HR representative, some things you need to consider to update your policies and make some changes. And with that, I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.